Anonymous Was a Woman was recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Jamila and Astrid and the team pay their respects to elders past, present and emerging. We note that this land was stolen and never ceded. My name's Jamila Rizvi and today I'm joined by Astrid Edwards and we are talking about momentum. I am thrilled that we are going to be speaking with critically acclaimed author Angela Saini. She's a UK author who I first came across at the Sydney Writers Festival almost four years ago now. She is the author of Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong in 2017 and published more recently in 2019, Superior, The Return of Race Science. That book, her most recent, has been on dozens and dozens of bestseller lists throughout 2019 and into 2020. The Guardian, The Telegraph in the UK, The Financial Times have all named it in their best books of the year. And it is truly an essential work. It explores the concept of race, the history of race, and how much modern research, including science, including medicine and genetics, is still based on biologically meaningless racial categories. So we're going to be talking to her about science and the importance of science in changing minds, about how science has perhaps a little bit of momentum in 2020 and how we can tell the real stuff, the good stuff from the fake. Please enjoy this interview with Angela Saini. Angela, welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. I want to start by asking you, what was it that inspired you to look into these very difficult topics around persistent and really complicated biases around what we think and how that stacks up with the science? What was the motivation for you to look into race and gender in the first place? Well, to a large extent, it was personal experience. The reason I got into journalism in the first place, I studied engineering at university, but when I was growing up, I grew up in a fairly racist bit of Southeast London. Racism was really the backdrop to me and my sister's lives. And even though I loved science and I wanted to become an engineer, at university, I started getting involved in anti-racism campaigning. I became quite political, as so many students do. And then I started writing for the student paper as a result of that. And if I hadn't done that, I think I'd be an engineer now. So it was there right from the beginning. And for most of my career, I was just a general news reporter. I was covering politics and crime. And when I started the science beat about 10 years in, I wanted to bring that same kind of investigative, interrogative perspective to science, because I think people from the outside imagine science to be this perfect world of people who are driven only by curiosity and objectivity. And nothing could be further from the truth. These are humans doing human things, studying humans. And when they do that, they bring their own perspective to it. They bring their own biases, their prejudices. And in fact, sometimes more so because because they're blinded by their own illusion of objectivity. Sometimes they can be even more kind of entrenched in these sexist, racist ideas. And science has, from the beginning, and I'm talking about modern European Western science here, has been entrenched in these kind of ideologies, but pretended that it hasn't been. And when you look through the history, it just becomes clear how obviously scientists have used 
their position, their theories, their hypotheses to justify some of the most atrocious beliefs. For example, the belief that women are not the intellectual equals of men, but also this belief that race is real, which it isn't. There is no such thing as discrete races. These are social categories and that there's a hierarchy between these races, which in then they used, in turn, they used to justify colonialism and slavery and segregation. We need to know that story because it's a story of us. Your works were a revelation to me, Angela. I know you started out as an engineer, but you write beautifully. So thank you very much. We are all living in a time when facts don't feel like they mean what they once did. And some of us, and I put myself in this category, kind of want some certainty, right? Like I would like someone to say, this is something, this is real. Science has backed this up. And of course, that is not what science is. And that is not, as you explain in your works, there's you know, often not a definitive answer. And if there is, we should check that because people bring, as you said, their, their biases or their prejudices to their science. So I'm really interested. What question did you set out to answer in each of your books, first on gender and then race? What did you want us to come away with an answer for? Well, I think, first of all, we have to, I still trust science. I still see it as the best possible way of understanding the world and the human body. I think, though, we, like you say, we have to understand that this is a process and mistakes are made in this process and people go back and they try and correct those mistakes, hopefully by correcting for their biases. That doesn't always happen. With these books, what I wanted to do was, number one, get people to understand what the human body really is, how human difference actually works. And it's it's often not in the ways that we expect. So I think a lot of us have these deep-rooted stereotypes and assumptions. Every single one of us, it's not that racists have them and the rest of us don't. We all have them. We're all raised with them. And I wanted to correct some of those myths that we have about human difference. Number one being that we are not as different as we imagine ourselves to be. The human species is one of the most homogeneous species in the world. We are more homogeneous as a species than chimpanzees, than any other primate. So remember that, number one. And human variation does not work along these group lines as we imagine it to. There's far more individual difference between people. So there's more difference between me and the next person and the next person than there is between me as an Indian origin woman and European, white European origin person. And I think if I can get across that, that's valuable. But I think more importantly than that, I wanted to get across this history and put science in context to explain to people that what we think of as human difference now was informed by social and historical factors. Both your books look at first race and also gender as social constructs, showing that humans have more in common than we do differences. Do you think when we talk about momentum for change and humanity starting to accept those two propositions, are we further down the road on one than the other? Are we doing better on gender or are we doing better on race? Or which one are we failing at more? You know, I'm writing a book on patriarchy at the moment. It's a very long project and I'm doing a deep dive, you know, right into the origins of inequality. And when you do that, you start to understand that none of these systems of oppression sit in isolation. They're all actually deeply intertwined with one another. You cannot fix gender inequality by ignoring racism. You can't fix racism by ignoring gender inequality. They're systems that by their nature treat certain people as superior and others as inferior. And 
in that sense, then, as long as you're able to do that with any group, then you haven't really fixed anything at all, whether it comes to class, race, gender, anything. And I think sometimes that's what something we forget. There's been some wonderful critiques, I think, over the last few years of white feminism and what they get to really underneath is the understanding that someone can be an oppressor and oppressed. We can all be victims and perpetrators. And that's something we need to get our head around that we all sit in different systems and we gain privilege or advantage in different ways. And we exercise our privilege and advantage in different ways. And I think something fundamental is needed. I mean, it all helps gender, you know, fixing the gender pay gap helps looking at kind of minute ways in which we can problem solve certain things does help. But I think fundamentally, we need to go down to basics and ask ourselves, what kind of society do we want? And what kind of values do we want it to have? I am so thrilled that you are writing about patriarchy. You took on gender in inferior, race in superior. And, you know, if this is going to be kind of a, a loosely held trilogy of you, <laughs> I, I just, as an avid reader, this makes me very happy. Now that we find ourselves in 2020, I did want to ask you about Superior, which was first published in 2019. And we are now a few months since the Black Lives Matter movement has begun. Are people going back to your work or interacting with the work in a different way? Yeah, I did see after the George Floyd murder, I, I mean, I think we saw this globally, that lots of anti-racism books, suddenly st people started picking them up, which was amazing. And so I have had a lot of fresh readers. My publishers were very kind to give away copies. They gave away a thousand copies in this country and they gave away the ebook in the UK and in India for free for a certain period of time. And it was such a positive thing to do. And in fact, the publishers themselves, and we know the publishing industry also has issues, gave copies to each of their employees. These kind of steps, I, I do think it starts with education. It does start with, it started that way for me. You know, it's through reading that I started to understand the context in which I was working and not just science books, but history books and sociology books and politics books. So it does matter. I wonder how much of a period this for change this really is. I hope it's not just a fad. We live in very strange times. I mean, in this country, nobody imagined that we'd stop talking about Brexit this year. We thought we'd be talking about Brexit for 50 years and already <laughs> we've stopped talking about it. So I do hope the momentum continues, that the backlash isn't too intense. We're already seeing a, a kind of backlash to Black Lives Matter. And we just need to use this movement as much as we can while we can to push for as much change as possible. But I do see it happening. I even see universities and scientific institutions responding in ways that I've never seen before. While we're on the topic of the wild ride that is 2020 so far, and I'm knocking on a lot of wood because we're only three quarters done or less, um, I wanted to ask about what impact you think the pandemic will have on respect for science and a momentum there because certainly something we'd been noticing in Australia and I think as an observer I've noticed it in the UK and the States as well is that over the past decade our respect for scientists and our respects for facts and data has decreased as the media has gotten louder and angrier and yet over the last few months here in Australia, we're seeing chief medical officers become quasi-celebrities and we all know their names and their household names again. Is there potential maybe for scientists to be taken more seriously and perhaps kind of have the, I don't know, the standing that they should in a community as a result 
of the pandemic? Is there a teeny tiny silver lining there? I hope so. Uh, last year, I set up a group called Challenging Pseudoscience, which now sits under the Royal Institution in London. And we are a group of scientists, journalists, uh, journal editors, people who work in social media, technologists, so quite a disparate bunch of people. But the aim of the group was to tackle this kind of misinformation and disinformation that spread so quickly over the internet. And even within parts of academia that you were talking about, the rise of anti-vaxxers, the rise of climate change denies flat earthers, for goodness sake, who thought that would happen? I mean, such crazy things are happening online. And a lot of it, if there's one thing they have in common, I don't think there's any demographic thing they have in common. But if there's one thing they have in common, it's that they are anti-authority. They don't trust government and they don't trust experts and authority. And that is a trend, sadly, that I think is increasing and I think sometimes for understandable reasons, because governments do let us down. There are some governments in place that seem completely reckless, that are kind of ignoring data and evidence and facts, for example, in the United States. So it becomes very easy then to lose trust in authority and in turn trust in science. And scientists themselves don't agree on everything always. And that makes sense, actually, because while it's easy to agree, for example, that the earth is round or that the earth goes around the sun, it's more difficult to get complete 100% consensus on things that are inherently as uncertain as what the climate will look like in 100 years' time. That's not to say there isn't really good consensus. There is. But that doesn't mean every single scientist is on the same page. And it's that degree of uncertainty that gets exploited by people who have, for political reasons, some drive to push a different agenda. And we have to understand that this is also how science works. So, for example, in the pandemic, we knew a lot less at the beginning than we do now. And that doesn't mean scientists don't know what they're doing. It just means that it takes time to get all the facts and understand the data and see how something like this spreads and get a measure of it. And so I wonder sometimes whether we need as a public and as children to be taught that science isn't just a kind of mass of facts, but it's a process that happens slowly that there is disagreement sometimes, but that you can still trust a body of knowledge that is arrived at by a wide-ranging group of people who've worked on a problem for a very long time. It's okay to do that. And you shouldn't lose trust in science just because some scientists disagree or, or they get things wrong sometimes, because they will get things wrong sometimes, they're only human. And I think that more honest relationship with science I think would really help public trust in science rather than treating science as this kind of perfect endeavour, which it isn't. Obviously, it can't be. That sounds like some form of a future utopia that I do hope we get to very quickly, Angela. <laughs> you write nonfiction and you have a very large audience. Your books are published around the world and Jamila and I you know, get to read them in Australia. You just pointed out that there are some people in public, you know, politicians or the media or, or others who exploit that gap in uncertainty in very healthy, strong science. Who is your audience and how are you trying to drive us, people like me and Jam, forward to do better? Well, I think sometimes I think my audience is me. I write these books really to work things through for myself. Before I wrote Inferior, I was just coming off maternity leave. I'd been told my life completely changed. The way I was treated completely transformed. And I thought to myself, these stereotypes that people have about me and what it means to be a mother, are they rooted in fact? I mean, are women natural, you know, the better parents? 
which is something that we take for granted, this idea that mothers are better parents than fathers. Is that actually true every time? Are women built for raising children and looking after the home, which is what some scientists still push at us, that idea? I just want to get the facts for myself. And also the facts around ageing, for instance. We have such negative, in, especially in Western society, such negative ideas about ageing and uh, women ageing and menopause. We just cloud it in this kind of horrible shroud of something to resist. It's treated as something to resist. And is that fair? So what Inferior really gave me was, and I know a lot of women get very angry when they read it because they feel certainly as I also did when I was writing the book, that they've been treated unfairly, they've been characterised unfairly, that their bodies have been treated as this kind of battleground. But I hope that when you reach the end, you get a sense of positivity that actually there is nothing in your mind and body that stops you from having equality with men. Yet you can live whatever life you like. It is our individual qualities that make us what we are, not the groups that we belong to. I do sometimes worry that recently, and I think this also happens in every wave of feminism, that there has been this retreat into essentialism again, that I hear people talking about women and racial minorities in, in essentialist ways, sometimes by well-intentioned people. So, for example, the other day there was a report on the BBC about a study that was done into female leaders during the COVID COVID pandemic. And what it found was that countries that were led by women happened to do better than countries that were led by men. And the guests that they had on speculated, and she was a female guest, she speculated that this might be because men take more risks than women do with people's lives. And I just thought, what evidence do you have for that? How is that substantiated? To me, the more obvious explanation would be that in a lot of countries, people are still so sexist that they would rather hire an incompetent man over a competent woman. <laughs> so where we have competent women leaders, it's because countries have got over that problem or that, you know, that those women had to be so competent in, either, in, in order to get elected, that this is what you would expect. So I think we have to be very careful about these kind of reductionist, essentialist explanations for who we are, even in positive ways. Positive racism, for instance, is still racism. You know, calling people better athletes because they happen to be black is still racism. There is still no basis for that. And we have to remember that, I think, when it comes to gender as well. You've looked critically at science and the way science is communicated. And I think what we've talked about today leads to a pretty big question, which is how do we communicate the science better? How do we make sure that facts are heard loud and clear and that pseudoscience and even quite respected scientific thought that is biased in many ways is better understood and isn't exploited to forward political or social agendas? How do we get that cut through so that the science that is being discussed and debated in the community is being discussed in a way that we're rooting our debates in fact? It's very difficult because often we only recognise the facts in hindsight. So, for example, in the 19th century, there were so many doctors and scientists who put forward the idea and investigated the idea that for example, black people had thicker skin than white people, that their bones were denser, that the psychological capacities of different races was different. This was science at the time. It wasn't pseudoscience at the time. It was science at the time. It's only in hindsight that we recognize it to be biased and pseudoscientific. And there are 
I would argue many areas of inquiry now and ways of thinking about human difference that will be considered pseudoscientific in a hundred years time as well. So it's not always easy, especially at the, in the early days of a field to know exactly what to trust and what not to trust. If anyone's interested in this, I would recommend they visit the website Retraction Watch. So this is an effort that's been around for a very long time. And essentially what they do is publish information about papers that have been retracted from scientific journals. And it happens all the time. And when you see that, you start to understand the problems that exist within certain areas of science and the efforts that people are going to, to root out the bias within them. This is how good science is done. When you recognize your mistakes and you try to correct them when papers are retracted. I would say to people, be critical thinkers in every aspect of your lives, including in the science that you read in the press, because that paper that you're reading about, about red wine being good for you or red wine being bad for you, whichever day of the week it is, could be retracted in a week's time, or it could be that the data that they used is very different from the data used in a different experiment or the sample size or the parameters that they're using. It's all in a certain context. Every experiment is done in a certain context and that's okay. That's how these things are done. So just be as critical about what you read online and in the media. Be as critical also when you're reading scientific papers. Angela, thank you so much for your time this afternoon and your morning. We very much appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed our chat with Angela Saini and please make sure you take the time to get your hands on her books, Superior, The Return of Race and Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong. And if you are loving Anonymous Was a Woman, please make sure you subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And while you're there, make sure you rate and review us. It helps other people to find the podcast. 